0: Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for the week ending Friday, the 12th of February. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on the podcast this week, you'll hear us chat to Michael Harden all about what's happening in the hospitality industry right now and all the yummy places in Melbourne. And we also chatted to Dr Jen asking the question if we pay more attention to what we see or what we hear.
1: Mm, Depends how old you are. Uh, Naomi Higgins popped in uh, to tell us about her new show, Why You Like This. It's on ABC and also on Netflix. I um, I found my first ever car on the road and um, it was pretty exciting. Uncanny. Yeah, and also Elizabeth McCarthy came into review. Sorrow and Bliss by Meg Mason.
2: We also chatted the new craze, taking the world by a storm, Petonk and Plonk. Uh, we chatted to the CEO of the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, Katrina Sedgwick, about the grand reopening of ACME.
1: Triple R I'm hungry. I want something to eat. Something with a
2: and very sweet. It's time for our first food interlude of twenty twenty one with the perpetually ravenous Michael Harden. Good to see you, Michael.
3: Great to see you too. It's nice to be back.
2: Yeah, bloody oath. How's that plant going? It's doing really well, actually. It's got a new shoot on it.
0: Oh, hello! (laughs)
2: Congratulations! I'm
3: feeling like I could probably almost be self-sufficient. I'm going to start.
2: (laughs) It's like
3: obviously I've got a green thumb.
2: (laughs) Um, What's uh, how do you view everything that's going on in the restaurant world? Um, well, it's sort of like you know. Speaking of
3: green shoots,
2: uh, <laughs> beautifully done.
3: It, um, it's looking it's looking pretty good, actually. Sort of like you know, it's 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 a bit of still a bit of a struggle, and you know, there's going there's you know, rocky roads ahead, all of that sort of stuff. But you know, we're, and it's back to you know, with the new regulations, it's back to waiters wearing masks again, and you're having to wear a mask when you walk into a restaurant, and you can have it off when you're at the table, but you know, going back and forth to the bathroom, whatever, um, that's back on. But Generally, it's sort of like, you know, people seem to be pretty enthusiastic. I've been out a bit. Um, There's quite a lot of people out and about, you know. um, All of the restaurants are saying that they could eat, you know, because they're using the distancing um, regulations. So they they could easily get more people in. But, you know, it's actually becoming quite difficult to get a reservation um, Mm. in a lot of places now. So you have to sort of plan a week or so ahead with most places um, just because everybody's wanting to, to grab those spots that are available. Huh. So, what about the CBD? CBD is still a little empty, um, but the, the, the business is there. Like I, I was at, um, I had dinner at Gimlet the other night, which is the new Andrew McConnell restaurant on the corner of um, Russell and Flinders Lane. Gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous restaurant. And um, they were jamming and they said that they don't they don't didn't um they don't have any room you know they're they're sort of booked sort of a couple of weeks out um i think they they try and leave a couple of spaces at the bar and around that area for walk-ins but mostly they have to keep it under control so Mm -hmm. it's like you know so it is it's pretty it's pretty busy and like you know i think that the interesting thing is that there's a couple of really big restaurant openings happening um, coming up in the first half of this year, a um, couple of them in the city, like um, there's one called Society, which is at the new um, 80 Collins um, precinct, you know, where the, where Le Louvre was behind there, that big, you know, near Nauru house, mm. big sort of um, uh, complex there, including a multi like a double story um very lavish restaurant that chris lucas of chin chin fame is involved with um and they're doing uh some quite um interesting interesting stuff there but also um, in that same precinct there's a new place that's just opened called farmer's daughters which is um a guy um the the chef from pastuso the um, peruvian place in town has teamed up with a whole bunch of gippsland farmers and they're turning farmers' daughters is basically a Gippsland cellar door mm. in the city. So everything wow. that they're they're serving there, all the booze, all the food, everything um is being sold. they Cheese, they've got cheese, they've got meat, they've got and there's a like a sort store downstairs and um and then a sort of a casual dining area. Then upstairs there's a restaurant and then there's a very nice rooftop bar. Um, there as well where they're using, you know, as much as they can, they're using um, spirits and ingredients from Gippsland and they're also growing stuff up there to use Mm. in their cocktails as garnishes and things, sort of like, you know, herbs and leaves and things like that. Cool. So um, that's sort of another one that's coming up, and the other, and the got other a, kind they've of they've got a
1: jingle coming out called "Farmer's Daughter" to the tune of "Trucker's Daughter." I hear that's <laughs> the
3: one. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a piece of marketing genius. Yeah. seen <laughs> the likes of before. It's, it's great. It'll be in all the clubs.
2: Yeah. So um, sorry, sorry to uh, stop there, but the yeah. so eighty Collins is um, what's well, on Collins Street. It's towards Spring Street. Yes, is the Paris end, as the par- they- Yeah, yes. <laughs> um, and and so it's in a it's in a big tower. I'm thinking of was there was a big there was like a Hawker hall. It was maybe it was called Hawker Hall, but it was on a Beckett Street. Uh, do you remember? Do you have any idea what I'm talking about? It was the it, anyway. Um, what I'm talking <laughs> about is precincts within skyscrapers. Yes, In yeah. and, it's, and it, they've
3: gone for that whole thing that seems to be with Skyscopers now is like, you know... It's has laneways in it, you yeah. know, it's sort of like seems to be this thing now that like, you know, and it is set back a bit from the street and it's sort of like, instead of just having, you know, walking into the building, it's sort of like you wander down these lanes and there's, you know, there's retail and there's, um, you know, and there's places to go and eat and drink and things like that. So, um, mm. you know, it's, it, they've, they've splashed a lot. It's had a lot of money splashed on it. It's kind of quite impressive and quite large. So it's sort of like, it's this sense of, you know, uh, confidence, I guess, that something's going to go back in. It's same people yeah. like the people that have the bar Arbury, you know, at mm. Flinders Lane, at the Flinders State Street station. And they've also got Arbury Afloat, which is their pontoon restaurant in the Yarra. They're opening up a place on, uh, um, I think it's Elizabeth's, no, Lonsdale Street, um, which is in an old five story, it's an old cigarette factory. And they're taking on the whole building. Mm going to be five stories it's going to be it's going to have live music venues it's going to have a rooftop bar it's going to have places to eat you know all of that sort of stuff so
0: so despite the fact that like you know the city is is quiet in terms of work if people aren't going back to work it probably will never be at the capacity we knew it it seems like people aren't reluctant to open restaurants and everything right in the center
3: yeah that's the thing it's sort Mm. of like there's not a it's not a um it doesn't people aren't shy you know there's sort of like there's another one there was like on a much smaller scale it's like the King William, which is a really good Sandwich window on um, Flinders Lane, up the sort of um, more up the Spencer Street end, and they've sort of just opened up in the middle of all of this. And uh, you know, I think they're doing doing pretty well. They make absolutely delicious sandwiches. It's one of like they do this uh, this fantastic fried oh. mortadella God. and cheese number. So they fry <laughs> the mortadella crisp on the outside. So, <laughs> cool.
0: well, thanks. We, we, we can't eat for, for more hours on this show.
2: Thank you,
3: Michael. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, don't worry. I've got. A, I've got a few a few of my favourite things I've been eating recently to tell you about as well. So, uh, you know. But, um, yeah, but generally I think, you know, the restaurant thing, like, you know, there's like Ronnie Di is opening up a new pizzeria, in um in the king and godfrey building in carlton so that's another one that's coming up You know a big large sort of place as well it's going to have you know roman fountain and a courtyard and a you know sort of imported pizza oven and everything like that so you know there's still there's people are still obviously hoping that um you know it's going to pick up and it's going to be doing all right
2: yeah do you want to nominate a, a um another parklet that you visited
3: my what other parklet have I done? I've done. I I did the one. you know, I think I I probably need to start paying Gerald's Bar rent um, <laughs> there. Um, quite a lot. And uh, yeah, I've been I've spent a bit of time in their parklet. I had they've got this this one with with booths at either end. Um, that uh, it's quite yeah, it's really nice. It's a, it's a good one. So that you know the parklet seems like that might be a a little phenomenon that's here to stay, which is great. Mm. So.
1: Um, you know, are restaurants, are they operating at a 100% capacity or do they not have restrictions on numbers? Like in, is it going to go, business going up again soon? Or?
3: They're sort of yeah. like they seem to be stuck on the belly. Like there's still like, you know, social distance. It's like, you know, still the 1.5 to 2 metre thing. So say if you're at a bar, there'll be a gap between your two seats. You can sit two together. And there'll be a gap between your two seats and then another two seats. You know, you're never going to be up against other people. So Mm. um, they can't. It's still sort of, I think it's around, I'm not sure what the exact figure, but it's around about 75%
2: capacity. Mm. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? I mean, we could talk for hours, I feel Mm. like. Yeah,
3: I know. Well, I was just going to, I just, my my little thing that I kind of got into while on my, this is my report from what I did on my holidays (laughs) was uh, that I started? I've started trying to find out, or I'm kind of fa- really fallen or re fallen in love with um, Turkish food, mm. and um, particularly sort of small Turkish joints. And there's a couple of places that I've been. Like I've been exploring out around um, like Coolaroo and um, Brody and um, you know Campbellfield and those places, which there's some really good places there. Couple of really big recommendations. There's an old school one. Um, it's like a um, it's like a kebab joint called um, Katik in um, Campbellfield, which does the most amazing Adana and always packed with people waiting out the front and, mm. you know, very, very popular, delicious food. So it, Adana is the, the skewers that are like, they're sort of a flat, wide skewer So, and the meat is wrapped there and then it's cooked over coals yeah. and then it's either served on a plate or stuffed into sort of beautiful bread with, you know, yoghurt sauce and, oh, and um, tomatoes and onions and lettuce and that sort of stuff. Delicious, mm. absolutely delicious. And the other favourite thing is a new joint called, newish joint called Miksha which is in um, Kularu, and it's a guy, Ish Tozen, who was sort of a fine dining guy for a while. He had a bar on Smith Street called G- Gigi Baba, which was a really delicious um, Turkish joint there. Mm-hmm. He's doing these things called chef tales, which are like a sausage, but they're, they're like a skinless sausage. They're wrapped in, in a like a lamb call and then grilled over... Over coals again, and they—it's like a spice lamb, and it's probably the most delicious thing I've eaten this year. So um, I would definitely um, get your your skates on and and do do Mixture because it's uh, that's absolutely delicious out Mm. there. So I'm going to report back because it's 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 my mission at the moment to find all the best Turkish food out in that area.
2: Please, oh, tip of the iceberg, (laughs) isn't
3: it? Yeah, yeah. oh yeah. It's sort of like you know, the more you go out there, it's sort of like the more you're like, oh, what's that? What's that over there? So it's. uh, It's a really yeah. It's a nice little uh, fact finding. And
2: machine. I've just been looking at pictures of sandwiches too. It nearly burst into tears. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I
3: know. Oh my god, the chi- that chicken
4: sandwich.
2: That yes. Those? Oh, oh those? with yeah, zucchini cheese. slaw.
3: Yeah, it's got got slaw. It's got little crispy chicken skin bits. <laughs> in All right. As well. I said
4: earlier, most people are at
0: home <laughs> eating their sad <laughs> <laughs> their sad wheat bits.
4: <laughs> oh. Leave them
2: to it, please. <laughs> yes. um, Michael Hard. So much more to talk about, but uh, we'll do it again soon. Yeah, okay, great to see you all. Thank you.
5: Triple. Ah.
2: Fresh from being underwhelmed by the contents of our lunchbox, Dr Jen joins us for Weird Science. Hey, Dr Jen.
6: Good morning. Well, it wasn't my lunchbox. I was listening to all that talk of exquisite food while I was packing my kids' lunchboxes and feeling like I was entirely inadequate. (laughs) No, I'm sure they're terrific. Well, you know, you can ask them later, hey? Mm. But um, this week, I want to tell you about this really interesting phenomenon that I'd never heard of before that I read about this week. So, you guys, I'm sure I've heard this idea that when you communicate, people say 90% of what you communicate is via your body language, Mm. Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm.
6: Yeah, Mm -hmm. And I don't actually know if that 90% is true. Other people say it's 50% or 70%. But the percentage isn't really that important. But what it means is that we pay a lot of attention to what we can see. And I discovered that this thing has a name. So it's called the Colavita visual dominance effect. And it basically comes from this guy, a psychologist called Francis Colavita. And in the 70s, he did an experiment where he presented people with two things at once. One was a sound and one was something to look at. And he wanted to see which they paid more attention to. And it turns out that humans, we pay way more attention to what we can see than what we can hear which I don't know what that says about people who talk on the radio, guys. Yeah, the (laughs) ratings are through the floor, actually. (laughs) So if people have got something more interesting to look at than listen to you guys, I'm afraid the evidence is in that they're not listening. That's very harsh, I know. But it's interesting, right? So the idea is that vision is by far our most dominant sense. If in the same moment there's something interesting to look at and something to listen to, we will always pay more attention to what we can look at to the extent that we can ignore Sound And there's lots of different theories about why that might be true. Um, But the fact is it's been shown in a whole lot of animals as well. So they've tested cows, they've tested rats, they've tested pigeons. You know, basically you can flash a light and play a sound at the same time and work out which the the animal responds to. And all of them show this dominance of what they can see, which suggests that it's got to be something that keeps us alive, yeah? Must have something to do with us surviving.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I think of um, t- television news and yeah. how you'd ha- you might have like really extraordinarily well paid presenters who cannibalise the work of underpaid hard copy journos. Yeah. Mm. And, and I, I feel like that bias doesn't reflect the effort.
6: Yeah, which is interesting, but then if you ask somebody after they watched a news story, did mm. they remember what was said or did they remember the images mm. that they saw, what do you think people would say?
0: Yeah, surely what they're seeing. Mm. Like if well, they what, I,
6: I don't think you'd be able to quote back what the report said. Exactly, whereas if you'd seen something really graphic, you know, some image of, you know, a fire or a cute animal or... I don't know. I mean, the reverse is the, the research is really clear. We are far more... We pay far more attention to what we see than what we hear, but this is where it gets really interesting because it turns out that in young children the reverse is true. (sighs) So young kids are the opposite. They pay more attention to what they hear than what they see and this hasn't just been tested with simple kind of flashing lights and a tone from a computer. If you show a kid a picture of a dog accompanied by the sound of a cow and ask (sighs) the kid what they've just experienced, they won't even mention the dog. What? All they will say is the cow because they heard the cow. So if you test really young kids, they are far more focused on what they hear than what they see. By about the age of 10 or 11, it's switched and there's this like gradual period as a kid starts school where they initially pay far more attention to what they hear, but by the age of, as I said, maybe 10 or 11, they've started to show this dominance that adults have for what they see which I think is totally wild, right? You walk into a prep classroom covered in all of these amazing, you know, colourful pictures and images of letters and stuff and it turns out that those kids are more focused on what they hear than anything they see.
1: Mm,
6: But why? Why? Well, I don't know, Jez. You tell me. It's really interesting. You're the and scientist. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing that I, the thing that brought this to my attention was this new study that's just come out, which was basically saying, okay, if you just want to test it with simple, you know, cats and dogs and cows, how about things that matter?s How about things like how we communicate emotion? So they did quite a nifty experiment. They had a whole lot of pictures of people who either looked happy or sad or angry or scared, and then they had sounds of people being happy or angry or scared or whatever, and they used both adults and kids in their experiment. And sometimes they showed and made them hear matching things, so someone who looked happy and was laughing, but sometimes they showed them things that didn't match. So, for example, someone looking really angry but making a happy sound. And so initially they told the people who were in the study, just ignore what you see and only tell me what you hear. And everyone found that really easy. The kids and the adults alike could just focus on what they hear and ignore the picture. But when they asked them for the reverse and said, how does this person feel based on what they look like, ignore any sounds you hear. The kids couldn't do it. Mm. So if you showed a kid a picture of someone cowering in fear, but you played them a sound of that person laughing, the kid would say the person was happy even though the picture clearly showed this person terrified. The kids just couldn't ignore the sound. So it just shows that, you know, it, it's really important. We try and use our body language. You know, people talk about putting on a brave face. You don't want to let on to your kid that you're really scared or anxious, so you put on a brave face. This just suggests that there's no point in putting on a brave face. It's all about your voice. You have to sound like you're happy. <laughs> mm.
2: you're
6: scared. I just think this is totally wild.
2: It's, yeah, it's... Fascinating. And I guess would a would a child, if they did have a bias towards the visual, you'd be endlessly stimulated. It would be Exhausting. It would be
6: exhausting. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I wonder if, you know, Jez, you said, why is this? I mean, you just gotta think about us, you know, in our in our early days as humans. Why was it, you know, was it that an approaching you know, a person from the, from the tribe next door who was trying to come and kill you, you were much likely, more likely to see them than hear them and so it was much more important to pay attention to what you could see. But maybe that's not natural. Maybe we've kind of had to learn it and we learn it during our childhoods mm. that sounds don't matter as much. Huh. Do you think but-
1: also with the um, the kids not knowing, you know, whether the, the guy was scared or happy, do you think that's also... Like a bit because, you know, kids just aren't the best at being able to label emotions just by looking at at someone at that age.
6: Yeah, I think that's a really good question, Jez. But I think the researchers got around that by making sure they could recognise them because sometimes they showed Mm. them matching face and sound. And the kids are really good at saying, yeah, you know, that person's happy or sad. I mean, I hear what you're getting at and it could have been part of it. But the fact that you could look at someone who was clearly terrified, and Mm. and there's lots of research to show that people are quite good at recognising facial expressions, you know, across Mm. cultures. But if you hear a laugh, you immediately become convinced that that person's happy. I mean, there's clearly lots more experiments to do, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean, Daniel, I think you need to go to Gabe and start testing and tell us at what age, you know, the switch happens. Yeah, I guess
2: I feel better that I just get um, sort of blank disappointing stares now. It's (laughs) not paying attention. Um, There's also uh, just another bugbear would be uh, movies based on books. Yes. And how people, you know, it's it's like or or even movies based on long-form journalism. It's like, oh, I won't read the article. I'll wait for the movie. Yep. And and what is the name of this effect?
6: Uh, it's called the Colavita visual dominance effect. So Colavita was the scientist who scientist who discovered it back in the 1970s. So I think if you just call it the Colavita effect. Yeah. And, that's probably okay.
2: And at what point do you think it switches over?
6: Well, they've shown really clearly that four, five, six-year-old kids are still um, dominated by what they hear, and that by kind of 10, 11, 12-year-olds, they're dominated by what they see. And I don't think we know the exact transition, and it's probably different for different kids, depending on what they're exposed to, you'd have to think. But somewhere in there, around eight or nine, is when the switch seems to happen.
2: And um, as a teacher, does this mean more PowerPoint slides for you?
6: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it made me think all about the remote learning that's happening all over the world, right? It suggests that what you're showing a kid, a young kid anyway, an early primary school kid, what you're showing a kid is less important than what you're saying to them.
2: Wow. wow. All right.
6: So much to think about. Yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> and be, aware, be careful what you say around kids as well. Be extra cautious. So uh, what it
6: means is that you guys should just focus on young children as your audience. <laughs> <laughs> adults get too distracted, but for young kids, they'll be hanging on every word you say. Ooh,
2: I guess. It's a target demo. Uh, Dr Jen, thanks heaps and we'll talk next week. See you later. Bye.
3: Triple R on FM, digital, online and
2: via the app. Nomi Higgins is a writer, actor, former Raw Comedy National Finalist, and now co-creator and co-star of Why You Like This, a new six-episode comedy series premiering next week on the ABC and later on Netflix. And to tell us about it, the actor joins us on the line now. Naomi, welcome to Breakfasters. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Our pleasure. What, firstly, how do, you, how do you say why you like this? Because there's no question mark.
5: <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, there's no question mark because there's no answer because the characters are awful. <laughs> um, <laughs> So Lazy. there's no point actually asking.
2: <laughs> okay, <laughs> and and walk us through uh, walk us through the show.
5: Um, so it's about three uh, people in their early twenties who are not good people, but are trying to figure it out. Um, and they sort of um grew up. Um, I guess they're sort of poisoned by online, but like a lot of us. Um, are these days, and it's just a joy to um, see that on screen. I guess just mm. people are outraged all the time. <laughs> um, I guess
1: when, because some of the things that your character does, um, you know, I've read that it's based on, you know, you've actually done these things. And I guess a lot of the time when people write their own TV show and they put themselves in there, they usually make them Mm. likeable. (laughs) So why go down this, you know, this road of making these three, all three characters uh, like, yeah, they're pretty horrible people. I guess, but I guess I, I mean there is, you know, you yeah, know, you want some I'm, redeeming features, but yeah, I guess why down that that road?
5: I think it's a lot more fun. I, I don't know. There's something I love. Um, TV shows without heart, where <laughs> you know, there's no message at the end. There's nothing to learn. The characters don't grow because I think that is more true to real life. But yes, it is based on. I mean, some exaggerated. Yeah. Um, Parts of my life um, that are definitely worse in the show, but sure, inspired by me also being um, just just rubbish. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Great. <laughs> is is there? Walk us through uh, Mia, Penny, and Austin, and how they together say something about this this moment that we're living in.
5: Yeah, so um, they're uh, best friends. Um, my character is um, Penny, so she's this little straight white girl trying to be the perfect ally um, and yeah, sometimes doing a good job. Um, Mia, is uh, she's South Asian, she's bi, she's um, probably the rudest of the three. She's um, an arsehole, really. Um, yes. And then there's Austin, who is um, a baby drag queen um, and pretty obnoxious. And so, them all coming from different political angles, we can sort of talk about anything and, you know, have the characters saying the wrong thing um, and being able to get pissed off at each other or, you know, sometimes, you know, be gearing each other up even when they're wrong. Mm.
1: His drag name is pretty great. Can you tell? Yeah.
5: <laughs> oh, yeah. Jean Benet rams me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Yeah, something cute.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And what about – tell us about the shooting process. I can't imagine it was easy. Uh, In fact, I I have no idea how you did it.
5: (laughs) Me either. Um, Well, we started shooting in I think March and we got about three-fifths of the way through um, before something happened, I don't know, (laughs) Um, and we got shut down. So, um, and we were shooting in Melbourne, so we had to, um, you know, wait for a while for things to subside. And then as we, um, geared up to shoot, um, the last two weeks, um, lockdown 2.0 happened. But by that point, I think everyone knew enough that it was like, okay, we don't stop unless they tell us to stop. (laughs) And thankfully they didn't tell us to stop. So we just kept going, but it, it's definitely a lot harder. We filmed one, um, scene in, um, Kitten's strip club. And there's, like, one stairwell at the start, so we had, like, a- as many extras as we could legally have, but everyone had would have to go in and out of each room, like, individually through this one staircase because you can't all oh, wow. be crowded. So everything took so long. Mm. Um, so you're working pretty fast to make up for, like, 20 minutes to get everyone inside.
2: Well, it's an essential service. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I Thank you. I <laughs>
1: Oh, sorry, just talk to us about the process as well, like the broader process of like this was a a Fresh Blood pilot um, a year or two ago um, and tell us about how you got that up and then from there you get on Netflix and and ABC.
5: Yeah, well, um, it actually started with um, web web series. There was 20 web series that got commissioned. Um, So we were one of those and then from there, Four groups got to make a pilot, and um, then um, from there we got the TV show, and uh, and I guess um, it was. It was fun to pitch it to Netflix and um, because of, like, the themes we talk about on the show, they um, thought it has enough, like, international appeal for them to get on board so that we can show it in ABC in Australia and then Netflix in the rest of the world and,
2: you know, upset everyone. Um, <laughs>
5: so, uh, um, yeah, I'm really excited. I hope hope people enjoy it.
2: <laughs> I see yeah. you've, you've been uh, trolling Auntie Donna for not promoting you online. Yeah, Why I saw is that? that as well. <laughs>
5: Well, um, I don't know. I just think, you know, as a group of, you know, straight white men, they should be supporting um, uh, art by women also because one of them is my boyfriend (laughs) who who co-created it with me. Um, I just think that maybe just tweet about it. (laughs) What's something to do if you're bored? <laughs> I mean, they're not tweeting much else.
2: But... <laughs> How? Uh, what is the role of promoting? You know, you've gone to the effort to make it in a pandemic and all of that, and then now to get something, someone to watch it—is that like a second major job in and of itself?
5: Um. Yeah. I mean, when we were doing the web series, I like posted a link to IView and. One... <laughs> And one of my friends said, sorry, I don't have eye view. And I was (laughs) like, no, no. Um, But I, you know what? I have no idea. This is, I've not made many TV shows. Um, So I just post a lot of crap online because that's the only way that I've ever done anything. Um, And I think it's all been, you know, um, uh, preparing me for this so i have no idea (laughs)
2: And, and apart from kittens what what did you get a kick out of uh creating and showing off melbourne
5: uh well we talk a little bit about um coffee and graffiti um not probably in a way that other people have i don't think um it's a it's a pretty aggressive take on it, but other than that, um, I don't know, it's pretty hard to film on a – we wanted to film on a tram, but it turns out that is hard and oh. expensive, and also during a pandemic, impossible. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so that did have – to. we did have to rewrite one scene to be on a boat in the Yarra River instead. <laughs> the classic Melbourne experience. A tram. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like everyone does in Melbourne, um, but I actually think it worked out better. So – uh, but yeah, it, it, there's lots of cool places around Melbourne, and I I hope people um, can like spot some
2: some of their favourite places in the show. And you you spoke uh, of it before, but the uh, these shows where the characters are unlikable. Can you, if you're going to get people on board who are fans <laughs> of certain shows, can you cherry pick some sitcoms or comedies or dramas that you you admire for their detestability?
5: Yeah, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia is a big one for me um, because those characters are always saying and doing the wrong thing and they're always screaming at each other. Um, And to me, I I just love that. I saw an episode when I was, like, late night on TV when I was in high school and I was like, oh, my God, what is this? (laughs) They suck so bad. (laughs) (laughs) You know, also, like, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Mm. which I guess is a reincarnation of Seinfeld, that kind of thing. You know, they, they... Seinfeld
2: definitely aren't good people. <laughs> uh, so you want people to watch it on iview and it doesn't matter when it c- comes up on Netflix?
5: Uh, it does.
2: I, 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 I know, <laughs> I don't, but you, your preference is for people to, what, uh, to watch yeah, it as soon as they can on because- iview.
5: Oh, absolutely. It won't be out on Netflix for a little bit. And even then, that's not in Australia. That's everywhere else in the world. So in hmm. Australia, it'll be on iView and then airing on ABC TV Plus and then ABC One as well. It, there's a, it's a, lot, a schedule that's very complicated. Yeah. But, um, but, yeah, obviously, I want people to watch it as soon as they can. And I'm sure... Everyone listening right now is like, I gotta watch this immediately. Yes, right? <laughs>
1: yes. Also, I want to know about um, season two. Is, will that be happening? Also, I bring it up because I found an email mm. uh, from back in uh, 2018 saying, uh, "Hi Geraldine, I hope you're well. <laughs> Mark passed on me your email. Uh, get in touch about a show called Why You Like This." Mm-hmm. And um, we'd like to offer you the role of cow farmer, Alex. And I watched the show last night and Matt Stewart was playing a cow (laughs) farmer called Alex. And um, I know I wasn't available, (laughs) but but there was a follow up email saying, we'll have to get you back if it goes, if we get the show up, the show's up. Come on. Where's well, my-
5: Jezza, um, I'm sorry, you missed your shot. Too late. Um, no Netflix deal for you. You should have believed in us um, when we were Should've little guys. Been- now we're big fish.
1: Yes. <laughs> should have cancelled my trip. Let this be a lesson to everybody. <laughs> everybody. sees opportunities when they come up. And cancel holidays
2: um, with loved ones yes. to, to follow your career. Yes. <laughs> Uh, well, it, why you like this, it airs on ABC February 16. You can watch it at, what, 8.45 or catch it on iView. Yes. And uh, yeah, the,
5: whole, the whole series, there's two episodes airing that night and then right after that's done, the whole series drops on iView that night.
2: Love it. Brilliant. Cool. Star, co-creator, Naomi Higgins, congratulations and thanks heaps.
5: Thank you so much. Triple
1: <laughs> R. Driving home yesterday and driving down... Alexander Parade, or whatever, um, you know, Lots, of, and then uh, pulled up alongside this car and, like, come, you know, looked at it and just went, Oh, that looks like a car that I used. And then I looked at the number plate. I'm like, Oh my God, that is the first car I ever You're bought. You're not serious. I am serious. Do they
0: legally have to change
1: number plates? No. Yeah.
0: What do you mean? Oh, I'm sorry. I don't know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> Maybe trouble. they have to change the. Um,
2: the yeah, name I guess on the registration stupid, and stuff. Stupid.
1: Stupid. Yeah.
2: Simple, sorry. Um, Sometimes I wonder, Monique, why yeah. you open your mouth. <laughs> <door? laughs> <laughs> goodbye. Oh, okay, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> um
1: But it was like, yeah, it was the number plate because, you know, and my first car was, it's you know, it was fairly, it's a common first car, you know. What so was the number plate? No, don't number <laughs> oh, Yeah. Well, the, the letters were R-M-O. And so yeah, I saw that and I went, "Oh my god, that's my car." And then it's, you know, I thought, "Oh, that's pretty cool." But then I got I pulled up alongside it and I just went, "I have to I have to acknowledge this." <laughs> and so I wound down my window and like looked across at the person, you know, it was a, you know, a, a young woman probably in a, you know, in her 20s, like ideal first car for mm. her as well. And and she kind of she was I think she was listening to some music or something she was having a great time and looked across at me and there's me going <laughs> wind, wind your window down wind your window down and she go and she's looking at me curiously and then like winds the window down I'm going oh, I used to own that car and she was like oh my god and I went it's and she said well it's still really great oh. and I'm like oh then I'm so happy to hear that. <laughs> And then I went, oh, you said, I called it Romulus. And she went, what? She looked so confused. I'm like, because of the number plate, R M O, Romulus. And she went, oh, I call it Barry, because <laughs> it's a barina. I'm like, that's so nice. She goes, anyways, it goes really well. And I'm like, oh, I'm really happy that it's, you know, that it's going so well. I went, like, okay, cool. And wound the windows back up. And, and then off we went. How touching. Oh. God, I just well, didn't think just... it was going to be that seamless. I thought like yeah. she would
0: have thought you were strange, or she couldn't
1: get her window down, or yeah, all of that. But it was, and also the perfect. I thought that, I drove away thinking, what a perfect conversation. There was no awkwardness at the. There was no. It you didn't was, pull up at her at the next set of lights. Uh. No, no, she because she turned, uh. and it was just this perfect amount of. I'm so happy that this, you know, that I've seen this car, and I'm so happy that it gives you. Happiness, and she was like, "Oh, it's yeah, it's great." And it just kind of, we got everything out, and there was no awkwardness at the end. It was like there was no, "Okay, well, yeah I'm gonna go now." But it was just, "Oh, that's great."
0: Windows mm.
2: up, and off, off we went. Uh, I like your nickname better,
1: Romulus. Yeah, yeah I like Romulus. It's quite esteemed.
2: Yeah. yeah, it's good. I'm glad she was excited,
0: excited about it as well, because it's kind yes. of a crazy thing. I had it. I got a bad reaction when I was walking and I walked past my childhood home and I was like, oh, this, you know, I'm mm. on, on purpose. I was in the area. I was like, I'll go past it and, mm. you know, live there for – 20 years or whatever, um, and always, I don't know if it's just me, but always worried that your child will be knocked down, maybe because I'm oh, quite yeah. sentimental. But it looks great. And the guy was in the front garden, like doing some gardening. Oh. And I was like, oh, and I was like, oh, this is the, and because it looked like, it was like I was just perving on his house. Mm. So I was like, oh, I, I, I grew up here. He's like, oh, yeah, you're from that cyber something family. And I was like, oh, it's, it's <gasps> Excuse severe. Excuse me? It's, <laughs> wow. and I was like, oh, it's severe. He's like, oh, okay. And that's it. And then I was like, I was like, oh, the place looks great. He's like, yeah, we've done some things to it, as in like, oh,
1: oh you've left it in quite the state, which
0: we did not. And then I was just like, yeah, that's really, really nice to see. He's like, all right, it just had absolutely no oh. interest. It's the worst
2: episode of home delivery of all.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I thought if someone did that to the place I live, I I lived here for 22, you know years. I go up in my sleep in my bed.
2: Yeah, you know. Try and right he was just so... like,
0: move along, please, cyber woman. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Goodbye <laughs> Oh man, yeah, because if someone came to, you know, was walking past the house And I'd be like, oh wow, tell us about this and yeah. what was yeah, it Yeah, come in, have a look Yeah No, no oh, what a I jerk remember, Oh <laughs> yeah Cyber.
0: And the last
2: time I saw my car it was on fire So I, <laughs> oh <laughs> I see someone really? driving it, something's gone terribly wrong for oh, Did you set it on fire? No, 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 guy set on fire <laughs> How much
0: did that cost you? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Nothing. It was the it was the only time an RSV guys called later to check up. Oh. Maybe he was worried that I'd, you know Get back in. Complain the you know, <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah. You're bit, yeah. I
1: think that, that I was excited to see my car because it I it nearly died before I resold it. It was mm. like Like it wasn't working and it it had been sitting at home for months and I'd taken it to like a mechanic and he couldn't figure out what it was and I'd taken it somewhere else and they couldn't figure it out. I was like, oh, I think it's just at the end of its life and you're just going to have to let it go. But then I tried this one other place and they went, oh, it's a problem with the exhaust and they fixed it. Mm. And then I was like, oh, I can't believe this car has come back to life. Mm. And I bought the car for like um, $3,500 or whatever. And then, so I had it for a few years and then sold it oh. for $4,000. Wow. I
0: hope that person you pass in the street isn't listening. What is going on?
1: Well, <laughs> she got it's still going. I but I would spent you know the money that I spent to get it fixed made it worth yeah four thousand. How exciting so. that
2: things can be resurrected! Like I mean, Dad's fixing a bomb of a car in uh, that he has that he's replacing the exhaust pipe with a table leg.
0: Yeah, what? how does that work? I want more information. Yeah. I don't
2: know how it'll work, but there's also I'm so glad that the Barry is it. Yeah, Barry. Uh that Romulus. Yeah, that she was having such a good time with the that the stereo system was working. Yeah, which was I had real problems with the
1: radio. Like you, if I wanted to listen to Triple R it wasn't one oh two point seven.
2: It was Oh god. It oh. was something else. Another frequency.
1: Yeah, yeah. And you could never work out the frequency. and then at once I you could only get like um like gold yep. on it. And also the air conditioning didn't work. So it was like Romulus was an old man. So it's just like, oh, it gets too hot and, and you can only listen to gold.
2: <laughs> I had just quickly, I uh, know, with my radio, it would just go, eh, eh. there was this scratching noise every five or ten seconds. And the only way to get the radio to work was I had to drive around looking for a speed bump and go over it fast. What oh, d- <laughs> and it would it would stop the scratching and finally until I got to the next speed bump. Anyway, did, did you
0: have like a, a CD? It sounds like you had a record player attached to the car. Oh, I don't, <laughs> it was a, it was a faulty
2: wire. I'm <laughs> glad it caught fire. Triple <laughs> <laughs> R. Time talk books. Oh my god! I feel like I've jinxed <laughs> oh, myself at how this point. You?
4: Oh. What a start,
2: Elizabeth. Hello. <laughs>
4: um, what, what are hello, we... Daniel Burt. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. What, what are we reviewing today? So we're reviewing. Um, I'm going to look at a book, a novel that has really kind of dazzled me, called Sorrow and Bliss by Meg Mason. And broadly speaking, it's a family drama with an array of eccentric family members. Uh, who are alternately funny and wise and flawed and insufferable and in each way their own sort of version of, um, you know, incredible human beings. So at the centre of the novel is Martha. Um, She's the daughter of uh, a very eccentric mother and a sort of solid father. Um, Martha, it's, it, the, the novel, broadly speaking, is a depiction of Martha's unravelling from when she was a young girl to when she's an adult suffering from a mental illness that has no name. So um, when the mental illness is finally diagnosed, the author doesn't tell us what it is, and this is a really sort of brave choice, and I would say a wise choice because that way we, the reader, don't categorise this extraordinary protagonist as simply, you know, suffering ex-mental illness, and that encapsulates why Martha is the way she is. So the author sort of seems to be saying to us, by not telling us exactly what the label of um, illness Martha has, the author seems to be saying, you know, Martha's much more than her illness, even though it does dominate her life and those around her. So <clears throat> to what, on one extent this is a novel about the hell that people go through before they get a diagnosis, but I actually had a ball reading this novel because um, Meg Mason has written a novel where every character is weird and unpredictable and hopeless and interesting, and these characters just leap off the page. And um, and one one of the aspects is the novel is also a, a sort of about a lifelong love between two very different sisters who adore each other even when they can't stand each other. So it's mm-hmm. it's a portrait broadly speaking, of a shambolically functional family at a macro level, but it drills down into these two sisters and their attachment and tenderness toward each other. And we have a lead protagonist in Martha who is not particularly likeable. She's often shocking and toxic and, and you know,
2: that's one of the manifestations of her being so ill. Are they thrown together for any reason or does it just play out as a, you know, as a slice of their lives? What do you mean thrown together? Well, you know, it's like oh we it's a weekend in a beach house and the family's or that we're reuniting over dad's death or No, no, no. So this is actually um this is an unfolding
4: over decades of a family's life. So so tonally the novel sort of straddles the sort of delightfully eccentric English family genre where various family members are uh, to use the old parlance, a bit balmy, <laughs> but it, but it's a real contemporary novel. So, And Meg Mason's insight into, I, I would call it, the contemporary human condition, if I can broadly call it that, her insight and wit is devastating and dazzling. So it, it unfolds across um, many, many years, basically. And so we, we see Martha from when she's a, a, a teenager suffering this... um this illness no one knows what it is or um what to do about it and we also see her go through her marriage with her incredibly patient husband um who adores her and who she really tests at various time times so look it, it's just a really accomplished and highly entertaining novel and I think
2: so many people would enjoy it, it it's really got broad appeal hmm. and what about um the uh the nature of is it like dialogue driven is it interior how do we how does the story propel forward it's both actually that's a that's a good question um it's actually both like like the dialogue is
4: really sharp and witty and some of the conversations that characters have with each other are just uh so sort of random and so true to life um and, yeah, so it's propelled forward by a, a really quite sort of um, breathtaking pace, actually, because you're sort of canvassing the whole life of Martha um, in this really sort of, um, I don't know, there's a lot of momentum in the novel.
2: Hmm. Um, and is it for, is you know, is it because I come from a big family,
4: Oh, you'll love it, Daniel.
2: Yeah, right.
4: <laughs> Look, you know, any, any family who, um, you know that Tolstoy thing, like all families are happy in the same way mm. and, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, <clears throat> paraphrasing, all happy families are happy in the same way and all unhappy families are unhappy in their own way mm. and this is a family that's unhappy in its own way and yet they kind of hang out together and resent each other and adore each mm. other and that kind of stuff. It, it's. I, I think you and your family will absolutely adore this novel, Daniel Bird. I've met several of your family members. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to say that they're, uh, you know.
2: Dysfunctional. They're definitely
4: in the pages of this novel. <laughs>
2: uh, it sounds so ambitious. It's hugely ambitious.
4: Look, the only drawback um, about this novel might be it's one of the revelations at the end about what Martha has resisted for so long and my feminist brain sort of clocked that as what like that was a little difficult to stomach for a little uh, yeah for a little bit but the other part of me was recognizing that this particular strand of the novel of of what Martha is resisting would ring true for some women mm-hmm. so that was that was a tiny something that sort of had me slightly concerned but um, and another aspect of this novel is, is that the men are quite straightforward and, and decent and the women are really complex and messy and intriguing. Hmm. So that's sort of really interesting, that, that, you know, and, and the author is on record saying that she finds women um, far more complex and um, interesting than men and she said that, you know, most of the men in her life are actually quite solid and they're not as complex and um, hard to navigate as the women in her life. That's what she said. And I can sort of see that in some of the writing of these characters, for sure.
1: With the, um, the undiagnosed, well, the unnamed mental yes. um, disorder, do you find yourself die-
4: trying to diagnose it anyway? Yes. And right. that's – so at one point I'm thinking, oh, the author's going to tell us what it is. Because it's this because you've kind of worked it out or do you think? No, no, I never worked it out. Oh. Um, but, I mean, other people could. I'm, I'm, I'm not. Oh, I'm yes,
1: not yeah, my question, question is, I guess, of, would um, it be um, different people would diagnose it as different things? Maybe they would recognise certain yeah. things and
4: they go, oh, well, it, it's, it's clearly it's this. A mental but... illness that also runs in this family. Right. And that no one has talked about. <clears throat> and when she gets the diagnosis. Um yeah, it's a real it's a really big risk that this author takes not letting the reader know what
2: the illness is, but I actually admire that and yeah, I yeah. think it
4: really works. Yeah, but I'll some love people it. might find it very frustrating.
2: And if I was going to fanboy over Meg Mason, would I find lots of her work?
4: Well, I I think this is only um maybe her second novel. Mm-hmm. She's she's actually written for a lot of um magazines in the past like you know, high-end sort of fashion magazines and women's magazines. Um, and you can sort of see a bit of maybe that sort of training and that craft come across in the novel and the pace at which it's written. Mm. Um, you know, someone who's obviously, um, who knows, you know, you have to keep the story moving yeah. forward,
2: yeah. How exciting. It's, uh, and it's very fresh. Uh, it's very
4: fresh and it's called Sorrow and Bliss and I, I sort of think that's a bit of a blah title. Okay. Um, you know, when I saw it, I was like, oh, God, what the hell is this about? Um, and it doesn't really reflect the novel particularly well, I don't think, the title, but it's, mm-hmm. it's huh. an absolutely wonderful, riveting novel.
2: All right. Sorrow yeah. and Bliss, Meg Mason out through HarperCollins Australia. Elizabeth McCarthy, thanks heaps. Thanks.
7: Triple
4: Ah
1: My niece uh, recently got her learner's. Oh, big day! I know. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. Um, so yeah, been doing lots of lots of driving. Getting gotta get the hours up. Mm. Gotta get the hours Is up. Is it still one hundred and twenty? Yeah, something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, but like when I remember, like when we got our, because I was in New South Wales, so it was like you get your L's when you were sixteen. And then you can get you go for your licence like eight months after that. Or right. Something. Eight or nine Whoa. months. Yeah, it was like – but this was, you know, in the 90s. I was like, oh, yeah, you can – Because
0: New South Wales, you can get it at 17.
1: Yeah. Get your licence at 17. Here you have to be 18. Here you have to be 18. So um, it's, you've got plenty of time to get your hours up. Um, and But she's – we uh, just before Christmas, um, we you know because we, we we're spending time together. So they've got a farm in the in the King Valley. So we had like a you know a pre Christmas Christmas with my family down there. So and we went for a drive one day and it was like oh yeah you can drive no problem <gasps> yeah and she's great she's yeah. Just, yeah yeah she's a really good driver and I think the the big thing is that she's happy to do it. I think that's the big key. It's like, oh, we've got to go in here and you've got to park there. She goes, oh, I haven't done this before. And I'm like, are you all right? She goes, yeah, and just does it. So um, so a very confident driver, which I think will, you know, go a long way. Mm. But we were back um, – I was back in the King Valley uh, on the long weekend. And so we went to – we were saying, you know, elsewhere, but went to – um, had a friend of mine, Kyron, and and Kath and I went to um, go and visit them on the farm because um, they've got a um, they've got a court or oh like botchy yeah oh but they, we call it batonk so we have patonk and plonk. <laughs> That nice. sounds much better. Yeah, doesn't it? Mm. Just come around for some Patonkin and Plonk. I'm like, <laughs> yes, yeah, great. Um, and so because it's, you know, my friend Karen hadn't been to the farm before and um, Beth was like, oh, do you, you know, I'll take you for a tour of the farm. And we're like, great. And they've got this, you know, farm vehicle thing. It's, called, it's a Polaris and it's like a... It's, you know, slightly bigger than, like, a ride-on mower. And you often see, it, like, it has a little tray at the back. So imagine those those tiny little things that go in between fruit trees. Mm-hmm. Can, you, can you imagine? Anyway, it's just a little kind of utility. Like
0: a tractor, but... Yeah, but right. a
1: tiny tractor. Like a tiny ute kind of, you know, like it's in between a ride-on lawnmower and a tiny ute. <laughs> So it's got these wheels and it's just automatic. You and it's,
2: a, put a dollar in and yeah, it just just, bounces you around. Yeah,
1: yeah. Google Polaris and um, you'll see what I'm talking about. Uh, so it's just this little car. So, and so Beth was like, oh, I'll take you, you know, for a drive around on this Um and, you know, we're like, oh, cool. So it was three of us all kind of squashed in. I'm sitting in the middle um, and you can – if you put your seatbelt on, it goes faster. So if you don't have your seatbelt on, it only nanny goes – yeah. Nanny <laughs> state, nanny But then put it on, well, you can get up to, I don't know, Whoa. maybe 40Ks or something like that. Wow. Um, maybe it's less. I don't know. It feels like 40. Yeah, it feels. Like the weather. Yeah, you're flying, right? <laughs> so – and then at one stage we were kind of going through – the fields and she goes. She drives like this is the dam and this is blah blah, blah. I'm like, Oh, this is cool. And then on the way back, we're going through the field, and I'm like, geez, she is so confident because we are flying. I'm like, mm. you know, and there's cows and the cows are like running away and stuff. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa. And I'm like, there was a moment I'm like, oh, I think I feel like maybe we're going too fast. But, like, she's... She knows what she's doing. Yeah, she knows what she's doing. She's very calm. Mm. Like, she's not going, woo, or anything (laughs) like that. She's just like, I'm just like, oh, I think she's just confident enough to go at this speed through the paddock. And then she goes, Geraldine. I went, yeah. she goes, you've got your foot on the accelerator. (gasps) And it was me the whole time. Like, because it's it's so tight. I just unknowingly... Just flooring it through this paddock, and she's like, "But all credit to her, she's like so calmly. It's just like we're going real fast, and I don't know (laughs) why this is happening." And just kind of looks down and goes, "Oh yeah, it's um, you
2: were responsible all along. Oh, it's all me. Oh, that how how long dragging your lead foot for? Oh,
1: for half a (laughs) paddock. Like it was,
2: it was you know,
1: oh maybe you know." Maybe about a minute or so, long enough to go.
2: Whoa, oh, this is f- pretty fast. Oh, do have a- oh do it- so not long. That's fantastic. I've I've friends who race uh, cars and motorbikes and stuff, and but I'll if I'm travelling with them and say the uh, wife or girlfriends in the car, the, they'll get told off for going too fast mm. or whatever, mm. and then then they get accused of trying to show off in front of me. Oh, oh, yes.
0: Yeah. yeah. That's what Jez was
1: doing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but it always puts you in an awkward position you,
1: yeah, as the guest. You, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, you're not ch- are you? – I'm
0: not impressed. Up, but, oh, yeah. but, like, but, <laughs> but it's fun. <laughs> yeah. But you don't need
1: to do that for me.
2: Yeah, yeah. Or if they're just trying to use me to shame them into going slower. Oh, yeah, yeah. Either way, you, you're, you're scaring not the... Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, platonk or patonk. Sorry,
0: oh, it's a real just the both of them together. Yeah. yeah.
2: Um, oh yeah. That's. I think you're onto something here, patonk and plonk. Petonk but and um, plonk. It's great. the because I've got a patonk set mm. and never used it. But it looks like you're carrying around, like, a suitcase of uranium. Is that... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. all silver. All yeah, silver yeah. yeah, it's silver. It's heavy. Yeah, but it's classy. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's classy, mm-hmm. but you look like a... Someone in a Bond film about to, you know, pass it to a anyway. Yeah, I'm a big fan of it. Are it's, the rules
0: different to bocce or it's just different? Yeah, so I tongue? think
2: Patonk
1: is you're kind of tossing it. I'm um, bocce you roll and botching bocce you roll. I think. Mm. But I
2: you know, could How come lawn bowls is so big everywhere but no one there's I I can't you can't see a baton Club.
1: Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Well, you've got to come to the King Valley. <laughs> yeah, come
2: right. Come
1: down and play batonk and plonk. Catch a
2: ride on this. What is it again?
0: Well, I've looked Polaris. <laughs> yeah, and they, someone texted in. It it's like a golf cart on steroids, which is a good description. Yeah, oh, thank you. They're, that That is much better. Than, and looking yeah. at them, there's a whole bunch of them, and it just makes me think, oh, this is what – when your cutie grows up in
1: the city, you don't experience this kind of thing. And that's the thing they do. And oh. Yeah, it's so great. Um. Also, back to – Crazy driving. Yeah. Um, my um, brother, we went on a family uh, a holiday. Oh, I wasn't even family. Like we were all together. This is when we were, you know, had first moved out of home and we were kind of all coming back together for Christmas and it was like on Boxing Day we went, oh, well, let's go for a drive through the mountains up like near like Mount Beauty and stuff and it will be nice a nice drive except my brother was driving and – he thought it was Mount Panorama, oh. and was just going <laughs> so fast to the point, like obviously he was having a great time, just going whoa around the tight bends and stuff. Yeah. And the rest of the family, like my sister, just cracked it at him and just said, "Martin, slow down! Like we want to enjoy the view, not the li- not our lives flash before our <laughs> eyes." Yeah.
2: It was just anyway, He's a little baby driver. Yeah, mm. it's better now. It's better.
1: <laughs> Independently yours, Triple R.
2: 102.7. Almost two years after the Australian Centre for the Moving Image closed its doors to undergo a $40 million transformation, the venue at Fed Square is once again open and ready to welcome visitors. Online to tell us about the redevelopment of this city's Museum of Screen Culture, we're joined by CEO of Acme, Katrina Sedgwick. Katrina, welcome back to Breakfasters.
7: Thank you very much. It's great to be here.
2: What's the uh, five years in the planning? This redevelopment. What were the considerations that went into it, and your ambitions for ACME upon reopening?
7: Well, you know, ACME isn't just Melbourne and Victoria's Museum of Screen Culture. It's it's our country's. We're we're the only museum of this type in Australia, and indeed in the entire region. Um, what's so interesting about being a museum of screen culture is that the moving image and how it's delivered to us is evolving so quickly around us. And we had to have a, a building and a sort of core permanent exhibition that was able to respond to that and evolve as quickly as as the moving images around us. So so that, that was kind of the big starting point. Um, and then we wanted to make sure that we had a, a museum that was really welcoming. Um, you know, the, the museum in Fed Square went, when we moved in there as a sort of foundation tenant tw- nearly 20 years ago, um, we weren't actually meant to be in the place that we were. We were be originally located somewhere else. And so the architects had sort of designed it more as a retail space um, than as a museum space. And I think ACME really struggled with that. Um, you know, we were across four floors with this very kind of vertical museum and it was really difficult to connect our cinemas with our exhibitions and vice versa on different floors. So the architects have kind of come in and opened it all up. It's a very kind of welcoming space, which is what we think museums in the 21st century have to be. They're gathering places, they're social spaces where people from right across the communities of all ages, of all cultures should be able to come together, explore ideas and then hang out and talk about them. So that's been another thing that's been really central to the the changes we've made. And what's the theme upon
2: your opening now?
7: Look, the theme is that this is your Museum of Screen Culture and we're really interested in how, firstly, I think how there's a kind of constant conversation between the past and the present, between analogue and digital, between physical and virtual, <laughs> and we're really interested in kind of highlighting that. Um, we're a multi-platform museum. You know, when you when you come to ACME, um, we're really interested in you exploring the ideas. You know, we're telling stories from the very earliest days about how people use the moving image. And, and really, you know, First Peoples in Australia have been using the kind of building blocks of the moving image, which is light and shadow, mm. for actually tens of thousands of years to tell their stories. And, and we're really interested in kind of pulling those threads together that, you know, there's not a singular moment where moving image began. There's a kind of continuum through time. Um, and, and we're really interested in, you know, telling that story through objects, through um, media, through costumes, through interactivity um, and experiential um, design. Um, But we're really interested in not only that being a kind of a wonderful physical journey through the exhibitions in our spaces but then how you can kind of extend that journey out after you've had the visit through your own devices wherever you are um, and we've we've set up a really fantastic kind of technological um, system to enable that.
1: Uh, yeah, talk to us about it's got this pretty unique thing where you get like a, a little cardboard carding. You just go around and you tap it on things, and it gives you information and also saves things that you've done. Um, yeah, can you talk to us a little bit more about about that system you've got?
7: Yeah, it's called a lens, and <clears throat> we've we've created it's it's a circular cardboard device. Um, it's inspired by the old Viewmaster lenses, Um, and uh, it's got an NFC chip in it. And as you say, it enables you to just go around and tap on the label of anything that you're interested. So it might be um, a beautiful old camera from the 1920s. It might be one of the costumes we've got in from The Favourite. Um, It might be from the beautiful Memory Garden, you know, where you can capture images of home movies in your hand. Whatever it might be, you can tap that and collect it. And then when you go home home, you you put in a code and you've basically got this magazine that you've created, you're the editor of all the things that you're interested in. And we've also created this thing called the constellation where, so let's say you've collected, we've got the Mad Max car in there, the Interceptor. So you've collected the Interceptor. We've created a kind of what we're calling a constellation around that where we connect the Mad Max car um, or Mad Max movie to a whole lot of other things that our curators have discovered the discovered ways that you might find interesting um, to connect to so for example uh, Mad Max features in The Simpsons and The Simpsons actually was heavily influenced by this particular cartoon which actually connects to this visual artist and so we kind of create these pathways through a the universe of content which normally gets fed to us through algorithms (laughs) you know Mm. be it through Google or Netflix or whatever it might be but because you're in a museum those connections are kind of created for you by human beings by our curators and programmers and it sort of starts this fantastic journey for you that extends out from this singular physical visit and it means we keep having i suppose a, a conversation with our visitors.
2: I was thinking uh, you know if you're a film nerd there's a lot going on for you isn't there? I mean there's a you got the piano from the piano. Mm. That's exciting. Um
7: oh, it's such- a beautiful object. Yes. I love that movie so much. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: and, and also the the focus on storyboarding as well. Can you talk, tell us a bit about that?
7: Yeah, look, we've got a whole section called Moving Worlds, which is sort of unpacking how things are made. So we look at costume design, production design, VFX. For, for Film Nerds, we've got a fantastic section about Douglas Trumbull, who's this genius um, visual effects guy who did Blade Runner, um, uh, Close Encounters of the Third. Good Kind, um, 2001 A Space Odyssey, like absolutely groundbreaking moments in visual effects. But another thing that we kind of unpack in this section is storyboarding. We've actually featured something that our team made for our DreamWorks Animation exhibition, which we had here at ACME in 2014. It's actually been travelling the world ever since. In fact, in 2019, it was the first two most visited exhibitions in the whole world mm. <laughs> when we presented it in, uh, in Brazil. Mm. um but anyway um we've taken from that a, a, an exhibit um which really highlights storyboarding and it shows where animators when they're doing working on a, a big animation um they've got to kind of storyboard out a particular scene so for example they've got um conrad vernon who's an animator with dreamworks um and he's storyboarded out the scene where um the duke uh, the duke is um torturing gingy the gingerbread man mm. This is from um, Trend mm. yeah. and the animator um, goes through and he's drawn in pencil each shot from the scene how he imagines it and he's got to pitch it to the director and the writer and the producer and you see him performing each scene against each kind of storyboarded moment um, and it's absolutely fascinating and in fact Conrad Vernon was so good at it that he ended up being cast as the voice for Ginger's
2: <laughs> intro. <laughs> it, it, yeah, and uh, it, it really is a terrific behind-the-scenes slice, that. And I, the, even just the dioramas.
0: Oh, I love that, the little miniatures of the living room. So there's the TV, TV through time and things like that. They've got little setups of Australian living rooms. And the most incredible part of it is that you've got something playing on all the tiny TVs that represents that era.
7: I I love dioramas and (laughs) I love miniatures and um, Sarah Tutton, our our chief curator, who's just done such a fantastic job with her team, commissioned these... For every decade since we've had television in Australia, we've got a TV from that decade. Inside is a beautiful miniature replica of that room and in that, the television playing a piece of television from that era, so, you know, from the nineteen. Um, 50s, we've got the Melbourne Olympics. From the 60s, we've got Hover side and so on and so forth. It's, it's, it's so beautiful. And I think that's one of the lovely things about this exhibition. You know, the moving image is delivered to us, you know, as, as a piece of media. But what makes it is so um, material. It's it's full of objects. It's made by humans. Um, and the materiality of all of that is really celebrated in, in the exhibition. So I think that's what's so lovely about, about the exhibition, it's called "Story of the Moving Image," um, you know, and it and it kind of not only does it it weave through so beautifully, kind of the history of First Nations storytelling and and just the incredible talent um, we've got for Indigenous um, filmmakers and practitioners in this country, and that's kind of woven throughout. But the other thing that's so special is is the way that that we use objects to tell that story as as well as media. Um, and I and I love that. It's why it's such a kind of satisfying physical visit. Mm. Um, but then, because we're a M- museum of the moving image, there's also this really satisfying kind of online visit as well. Um, so you know, Acme is really, I think, cutting edge anywhere actually in the world in the way that we've used kind of digital tools to tell this kind of story. Um, and really created a genuinely multi-platform museum. and And what we opened yesterday is the core part of that, the physical mm. museum, but there's a whole lot of online components of that. And I should just add, you know, when we talk about the physical visit, um, we opened our museum, so we have our new cafe, wonderful cafe opened yesterday, beautiful shop, the the um the galleries and and there's these fantastic free public programs running all weekend. But we opened our cinemas. Mm. last night and um, just so thrilling to be able to gather together in this magnificent kind of darkened space. Um, and we showed uh, a digitally restored um, uh, screening of um, a Wong Kar Wai film, um, In the mood for Love. Um, Wong Kar Wai is an absolute master of cinema and they've digitally restored um, all of his films, which we're screening, Um and they're selling wonderfully, and we've put 4K um, digital laser projection mm. in those cinemas, and it is extraordinary. Okay. So you know, another reason to come along.
2: All right, uh, and the exhibition is free.
7: It is free. Um, almost all of our museum is free, um, and again, it's a it's fantastic to be opening up something so special that's so accessible. For the people of Melbourne. And we've actually changed our opening hours because we realise that without tourists, it's like most of us are really busy <laughs> working <laughs> and going to school in Melbourne. So we've changed our opening hours um, from, uh, they're now open, t- we open at midday um, and we're open till seven. Uh, Wednesday through till Saturday. We're open till 6 on Sundays and 5 o'clock Mondays and Tuesdays. So it's really easy to come after school or after work um, and and spend time in browsing through this magnificent space.
2: Well, congratulations again. Acme.net.au is where you can head for the full slate of uh, what's on and head down to Fed Square. Uh, We've been speaking with uh, Katrina Sedgwick, CEO of Acme. Thanks so much. Thank you.
4: Melbourne's
3: Own.